This episode of the Cyclist Magazine podcast is brought to you by Sportful, home of the Fiandra Collection. That's right. The Fiandra is a no-nonsense range that was developed on the cobbled bergs of Flanders, where the variable weather can be as challenging as the road you're riding on. Using valuable input from Sportful's pro riders, the likes of Peter Sagan and Paolo Bettany included, the Fiandra collection mixes weatherproof technology with a performance fit for tough clothing that you can actually race in. With everything from warmers to jackets, bib tights to gilets, the Fiandra range will have you covered from head to toe, leaving you with no excuse not to ride. Prices starting from £45, the Fiandra range is available at all Sportful stockists. For more information on the Sportful Fiandra range, click the link in the episode description below. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the Cyclist Magazine podcast brought to you in association with Sportful. I am your host, Joe Robinson, and as ever, joining me with his headphones on and his eyes locked into that screen, Mr. James Spender. Jambo, Joe. Jambo to you, Jambo, Jimbo. And on today's episode, we have a multiple British national champion, a Criterium de Dauphiné stage winner, Tour de France finisher, Mr. Pete Kennock, as we talk about life in retirement and his return to cycling. But before we get into that chat, the usual the things we like and the things we don't like. So James, how are you? How have you been? What's been going well in your life and what's not been going well? Cycling and otherwise. Cycling and otherwise. Well, as you uh, just saw, I nipped off screen then to go and turn the washing machine off because it's one of those appliances that just it just beeps obnoxiously. It thinks it's been helpful. It makes sound incessantly. Yeah, when it's finished, and I'm like, thank you, washing machine, I have been notified. <laughs> yeah. And then it notifies me again. It's tapping me on the shoulder. And I, so actually, that's something I don't really like. Just generally, I really like filling up the washing machine. Right. I find that incredibly um, pleasing. What weight load can your machine take, and what brand is it? You know, I think technically she's probably a six, but I push it to eight. She's a, she's a Bosch. I'm a Bosch. Yeah, it's a Bosch XL. She's probably about 13 years old, 15 years old, I'd say. Oh, mine's mine's in the infancy compared to yours. The infancy. It's infancy, yeah. It's only it's barely seen uh, fourteen months worth of use compared to your yours is in its uh well it's not in its life life limbs. I'd say it's in its middle age. I'd say that uh you and your Bosch have got a lovely lifetime ahead of you, like like a young married couple. You're still in the honeymoon phase at the moment. Yeah. But you can be sure that she'll look after you and you'll look after her. Um, and mine is like a set of Campagnolo gears. I mean, you only really break in a Bosch washing machine after the first dozen years. So now she's <laughs> she's running as sweetly as she'll ever run. Uh, we get an occasional little bit of leakage, but that's to be expected uh, with an older person. So yeah, it's a great little, it's a good little runner. Do you ever get the? Do you ever get that egg smell that sometimes creeps out of a washing machine? Of course I do. But I'll tell you where that's coming from. That's not your washing machine most of the time. That's your drains. Right. Okay. And I'm, I've got obviously shared drains being in a flat, similar to you, James. So you're just chucking up air from other people's houses, aren't you? There, You've, you're getting a kind of back flush effect from the shared drain. You can you can go in, you can clean that U bend, mm. you can eat your food out of that U bend. It'll be that clean, and it'll still smell. You can clean that filter in your machine; it'll still smell. Doesn't help that the bloke above me eats twelve eggs a day. Then, goodness, I mean that's a lot of eggs. What's he do with the shells? 
Ah, he just throws them in the bin. He should be crushing them up and putting them in compost. Good little things, but it helps the soil there, right? Anyway, so washing, that annoys me. I like putting it on. I hate taking it out. You told me earlier that you've forgotten about yours. You put it on at 11. That's going to need redoing now. That's going to smell like a damp dog. Well, yeah, for, for reference, it's half free. So I'll just put it on the 20-minute quick spin uh, just to, to freshen it back up, and then I'll get it hung out. It's quite nice today, actually, quite sunny. So I should probably get it out there, try and get some of that natural air to it. It is quite sunny. Um, and actually, that brings me on to what I like, Joe, because that's sunny. Um, it's also a bit chill. And for those days where I just like, I kind of want to be warm, but in short sleeves, I'm loving Merino, the champagne of wool. It is the champagne of the wool, yeah. The we- the Merino accessories, um, mainly Merino base layers, they're great. They are snug as a bug in a little rug around my shoulders and my torso. Um, antimicrobial properties. I'm not saying that you can swab down uh, hospital surfaces with them to avoid MRSA, but I am saying that you can leave them in your uh, in your dirty clothes bin and they don't smell. You know, like when you get cheap polyester gym shirts, you, and if you oh, leave them balled up, sweaty, yeah. yeah, give them a week and then give them and give them to the bin. They, you can never get that out. I don't know what it is. Uh, so merino, merino, anything. Also merino socks. I love a love a good pair of merino socks. I'm a, I'm partial to a merino uh, round neck jumper. Oh, I've got, I, do you know what? I've got Merino crew neck. Best thing about that, the sleeves still got their elasticity. I don't know how. don't know how Fred Perry did it. Keep their shape, don't they? They do. They really do. So big shout out to Merino and to Bosch. Two great brands. One makes sheep, the other makes washing machines. And uh, something you're not liking there, James? Something I'm not liking? Well, I'm, I'm just a bit, I've got a bit of anxiety. Um, there's some foxes that I like to look at out of my flat window and I can gaze down and see them um, on this undeveloped plot of land. And I'm worried that the land is going to get developed. That's number one. Number two, didn't see them this morning. Um, did see one of them this afternoon curled up on a plank, which was nice in the sun. Just resting. Just resting. You've got you to gotta rest if you're a fox. You've got things to do at night time. Um, but I was just wondering if the reason I didn't see them normally, uh, I always normally see them at about 8 o'clock. The reason I didn't see them is because maybe they didn't put their clocks back, which I wondered if animals did. Do animals put their clocks back? Do they know? Or- I I heard they ignored uh, daylight savings and I heard they just they went on with it because they said we prefer to have an extra hour of sunlight in the evening. <laughs> Which will do nothing nothing with except for sleep. It means they get an extra hour in bed later on and they get an extra hour hunting in the morning, actually, is why they do it, James. That would make sense. Before becoming a pedant. Yeah, well, no, I think that makes sense. And it allays my fears because I was worried that maybe they'd moved on because I've really enjoyed watching their progress. I do love I love an urban fox. So, yeah, um, that's 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 I don't I don't dislike it anymore. I'm feeling quite good about things. Yeah, I think I think I've solved that there for you there, James. Yeah, yeah. So uh, go on. How about how about you, my friend? What's uh, getting you up and getting you down in the world of Swanley, Kent? Uh, well, did you say I live in Bromley? Because that's incorrect. I said I said Swanley. We've both got colds, haven't we? That's the other thing. Mm, that's one thing that I'm not liking. Um, one thing I am liking though is the return of Curb Your Enthusiasm. The Larry Davis Another season. sitcom. Yeah, it's excellent. Absolutely brilliant. Pretty good. Pretty, pretty good. Pretty good. Um, it's just very funny and I like to watch. You know, I don't watch it live. It's on Monday nights because I'm too busy watching Succession, another TV show that all of our listeners should be watching. Um, what I do is I record it and then I usually watch it over lunch on Tuesday. So 
I've got a little thing going on there and I quite like it. Another thing I'm quite liking there, James, is um, Savoy Wellington. Now, I'm assuming that is not a gumboot made out of sausages. No. Um, another a recent Monday that have just passed, at our, um, I go rugby training. And sometimes we do food evenings after rugby in the bar uh, where we all share sort of a, an arrangement of foods in, in a buffet format. We've done sausage night before where we've had a variation of sausages. We did a Six Nations night where we had to bring food from the different Six Nations. Um, and the most recent one we did was a pastry night. So everyone brought their own pastries along, James. I brought along some Cornish pasties that I'd had sent up from Cornwall. Um, I'm going to show you a picture right now. I'll put this in the uh, episode description below so that the viewers can, uh, the listeners can view it. So there is our spread. Ah, oh, that's deliciously crispy and beige. Beautiful. That's a beautiful thing. Yeah, very beige. There's quiches, there's pasties, there's curry pasties, there's samosas. It appears the resistance is that one of the men, one of the lads, made a, uh, a Savoy Wellington. There you are, James. Look at that. Look at that. Has he actually got the duck cell mushrooms around the outside and the spinach as well? So there's duck cell mushrooms, onions and sausage meat encasing a Savoy, which is not, well, it is sausage meat, but... You know, nobody's ever confirmed that to be the case. No. And it is in- encased in some lovely uh, pastry, all butter, short crust, I think. Um, it was delicious. But it was also the thing I didn't like because uh, it gave me terrible heartburn. As you I can, can imagine, imagine yeah. that amount of amount of uh, faux sausage meat being ingested in one go at nine o'clock at night on a Monday. The perfect, yeah, the best of the worst time to eat a Savoy Wellington. It left me struggling, so uh, I had to, you know, I had a difficult evening, but I don't regret it. Yeah, well, apparently, apparently, uh, pork pies, and I, therefore the Savoy Wellington, excellent endurance food. I w- I'm not surprised. I probably ingested about three and a half thousand calories in one slice, <laughs> and uh, but it went absolutely delicious with some Coleman's English mustard. That really set it off. Um, I went for that. My dad, a listener, my dad, he went for some piccalilli with it. The uh, most luminous of all the condiments and the most mysterious. It is. It is mysteriously luminous. It's um, it's up there with sort of the red, slightly schnobble glow of uh, good quality sriracha sauce. Or the uh, red schnobble glow of uh, low quality ketchup that you get in cafeterias and... Greasy spoons. Do you know what? I'd love to go to the places where they make low quality ketchup because it's actually better than the high quality stuff. No, because it's. Oh. I mean, well, no, because it's not. Number one. Uh, number two. I'd say often it's so bad. It, I'm struggling to work out how they make it so bad. I think it's got high vinegar concentration. Very high vinegar concentration, which I guess helps it last longer. But um, I bet they'd probably be quite interesting to go to those factories. I was watching a little, a random little piece about you know when you go to the market and you see really cheap jeans, uh, like fake Levi's or sort of, well, like brands you've never heard of, like um, Claudio Ticini or something like that. You know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they've got yeah. uh, inexplicably huge amount of stitching on the on the thigh and they've been distressed <laughs> to within an inch of watch your documentary about that um i think it was a vice one and uh of all the jeans you could probably get they're like the most locally made because there are people like in and around london where we are that just make them they're tailors they just smash them out 
Right. Yeah. They're not okay. Because I was like, oh, they must just be like dodgy imports from some far flung part of the world and terrible for the environment. But actually, they're probably more environmentally um, or less environmentally impactful than your average Levi Wrangler. Well, shame they look shit. Otherwise, I'd wear a pair. <laughs> but I did think if you could find these people, find one of the guys and get them to like make, maybe it's just a design thing. There's some allegory here between amazing factories in China that make carbon fiber frames really really well but the frames themselves are badly designed I feel like we need to hook ourselves up with these clearly very skilled tailors and seamstresses uh and get some better designs made and we could start our own jeans brand i don't know if that's something you'd be up for little little tangent there has nothing to do with cycling but i'm going to go with it anyway swadley market on a wednesday is your classic market setup. So it's got your fruit and vegetables, your, your traditional stuff, your meats, your fishes, but it's also got clothing and other stuff. But would you like me to tell you the best heart, best part of the market for me? Actually, there is a cycling. There's a there's a stall that sells out of date magazine. Do are we? Do we? The cyclist cyclist magazine is on there. We're on it. We're on it. That is amazing. We're on it. Right there was. Uh, I'd, I reckon about June this year, there was an issue from 2017 that they were selling still at £4. Still selling what? it for £4. Yeah, I know. Um, and there's everything from like the Radio Times, but from 2014. <laughs> so completely pointless because the, uh, the the TV guides are completely out of date. But next to the place selling out of date magazines is a local bloke who makes Chinese food. Yeah. So classic, classic of the market store. You can get your chow mains, your chicken balls, your egg fried rices there. And then next to that is a woman who does uh, lip fillers and teeth whitening. Does she do them on site? Yep. Lip fillers on site? Lip fillers and teeth whitening on site, on the market, opposite Asda, next to the Chinese, next to the out-of-date magazines, next to the fishmonger. You can get your Botox done on a Wednesday afternoon in Swami High Street. That's incredible. Once upon a time, I thought the most talented people were mechanics that could lean out of windows and adjust rear derailleurs at four, like 45 kilometres an hour in the middle of a grand tour. Now, it's the woman who can do Botox and teeth whitening in the street market live. With the smell of chow mein intoxicating the air. Goodness, I mean, that's, that's a heady sedative. That's prob- that probably helps. Is there a deal where you can get your lips and your balls done at the same time? <laughs> I have a- I mean, your chicken balls. <laughs> I'll have to go. It's- I'll go check for you tomorrow, James. I'll walk up there and uh, make some inquiries. Well, I think you probably should. But uh, on that note, I'll tell you what we probably should do. Get into the interview? Yes. So I think, yeah, a good place to start, people, would just be Frontiers. What What is it? What What is the video... Why have you shot it? What's the best way to explain it to someone if they were if you haven't seen the video or they're about to watch it? The interesting thing about the video is the film. Rowley Rowley got in touch with me Jan December or January December last year maybe. Mm. He noticed I've been doing a quite a bit of triathlon or triathlon training mm. and they were launching the motorsport Wahoo um, watch. Yeah. And he basically was really keen to have me on as an ambassador, enter a triathlon. Uh, but it, it was never really set in stone what the what the idea was and what the relationship was going to be. Uh, and then, but we always had this idea of making a film yeah, uh, without knowing what the end product would look like. And then um, it kind of just snowballed from there, really. We were in touch all year. Yeah. The guys 
finally came over to film and the video of the film ended up being completely different to what I think we thought. For, for you uh, listeners who haven't seen the video yet, it's I've seen it and it's actually quite quite emotional. It takes mm. it goes into it goes into more about why you retired. You're very open in it, very honest about sort of calling time on your career as quite a young rider and it's definitely not just sort of a training diary. No, I was really not anxious, but like nervous actually about the film and the questions that they might ask and how I would be portrayed. Because uh, obviously, you know, I think one night we were doing interviews for three, up to three hours. Right. So obviously they were only taking snippets out of, out of that and stuff. So, I mean, I was nervous before it yeah. about what they wanted out of me and what they wanted to film and the questions they wanted to ask. And then I was nervous after it about <laughs> how I'd answered them and how the end product was going to look. But after seeing it, I'm... I'm really happy. I, I feel like they tell the true story. Mm. I'm happy that I was honest. I feel like I was quite honest. Yeah. Uh, and it was it was it was an interesting week for myself because I've never really sat down properly like that and talked in depth about myself, my career, um, the journey up until now as well since um, retiring. So the whole the whole process of, of of making the film, going through it, was was an experience for me also. And I think you can, you might be able to see that within the video yeah definitely I think you for, for for maybe us on the outside when we saw so you retired in 2019 so that's three years now mm. I remember thinking it was a bit of an out of the blue and then yeah. there wasn't really much in way of an explanation as to why normally if someone retires at that age it's normally like I've got a nagging knee issue mm. or you, you hear about an injury they've had whereas for you and you're being honest about it now it's more of a, a psychological mm. battle that you've had throughout your career yeah yeah, ups and downs throughout my career. It was last probably. I mean, I went through the first part of my career. I wouldn't say it was a breeze, but never really with any doubt about self belief or why I was doing it or what I was doing it for. I was just doing it because I enjoyed cycling and had a passion. And then probably the last four years of my career, doubts and sort of questions were coming into my head for, for no reason. And there were parts of, of the season where I couldn't deal with it. Yeah. And I was a complete write off, and then, like you see in the film, um, I would get, I'd manage to get through it each year, and I would always have this down period, and for some reason, I have no idea why it was always. You say in a video actually, it's, you said twenty fourteen to twenty nineteen. Yeah, and every every April, like April, yeah, right, every year, because um, that was I'd have been that's when you were uh, your season. Properly, probably kicked in like late April, didn't it? With mm. sort of our bends and then sort of one week races. Well, this was the problem. Everyone, a lot of teams, especially with my characteristics, thought that the odd end was the perfect race for me. Yeah. But they just at the, the wrong time of the year. You're right. Because I couldn't, honestly, some years I couldn't even get out of bed in April, never mind finish an odd end classic. But then right. the, the bizarre thing was, I would come out of it and I'd, you know, start to build up again. And, get the passion back, get the fitness back and come June, July and I'd always finish strong and then that would then lead me into another year and then the cycle would go again. Yeah, yeah. But there's only so many times you can do that before you, it catches up on you basically. You know, the first time it's like, okay, that was a bit of a dip in the season. Yeah. Deal with it. Had a great end of the year. You know, you might have like one year, for example, national champion, went to the Tour de France. Yeah. Well to... Uh, 16th in the world championships or whatever and then that gives you the motivation and the self-belief then into the winter 
Yeah, it's gonna you know next year will be fine. I won't. What can I do to avoid this April shift? But then, yeah, it snowballs and gets to a point where it's like, you know what, I can't really were come you, through this. Again. Were you conscious of it at the time? Like, yeah, I was conscious of it. Yeah, I mean, I talked to people within teams about it. Um, talked to Rob Ellenworth about it. But, yeah, didn't really understand why I couldn't perform in April or couldn't even train. You know, I felt like quite just really energyless and um, no motivation. Uh, you know, not ill, but just yeah, no desire really to right. to ride my bike yeah. or train, which is becomes a bit of a problem when you're paid to ride your bike yeah. and turn up to races. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Thought of going to Paris was just at certain points was just a million miles away. It's like there's nowhere to go and race in Paris. The way I feel, and then, but then you know, two months later, I was in the opening. Yeah, it's, exactly. It's, it's bizarre. Winning, like winning stages. I wish I, I just wanted someone to come up to me and diagnose me with something and just say, oh, this is what it is. But I just never, I can never put my finger on why and I can never change my preparation. Because, yeah. you know, for example, for example, one winter I was, I thought, oh, maybe I'm just taking too much time off in the winter, chilling out too much. You know, I like to, I had quite a social life in the winter. I like to go out with my mates, just be a normal 23 year old. Yeah, yeah. While you had the chance. I thought, you know, maybe I'm just relaxing too much and not putting enough um, work in on the bike. So one winter, I was like, okay, I'm going to completely change what I'm doing. Right. Really good structure for the year. I have a couple of weeks off and not letting myself go too much. And I won um, Canal Evans Road Race. Yeah, I was yeah. like, all right, this is it. Yeah. So you thought you'd uh, um, like solve the issue. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and then exactly the same thing. <laughs> right. again. So do you now... Do you know the reason why no, that happened, or is it still just a mystery to you? I don't know. I don't. Yeah, it's a mystery. I don't know because even last year, maybe in April, I felt a little bit the same. And I, but I, I didn't. I don't know. I didn't let it snowball. But I don't know if, if the pressures of um, what I was expected as a you know quite a highly paid professional cyclist, yeah, made made. Made how I was feeling emotionally snowball, yeah, to the point where I, it was a bit out of control. My emotions and my feelings, where because obviously, if it, if, I, if I go through the same thing uh, next April or this April, there's no one asking me to go to Paris in a week's time, and then it starts again. You know, where this that I've got time, I can, you know, I can take a day, day or a week or two weeks to myself and just relax, take it easy, and then kind of figure out. But I don't even know how to explain it, so. It's, I think it's I think an interesting place to go back to actually is your childhood because in the video in the frontiers video there's some really touching sections where you're going through like old scrapbooks mm. and what struck me was it was you weren't just a like a talent you were a very talented junior rider but you were clearly someone who really loved the sport at that time yeah and I would say even not obsessed because I'm actually you know what no it was obsessed because yeah. kids have obsessions with yeah. stuff I remember being obsessed about rugby when I was a kid mm-hmm. and I from like from them scrapbooks you got pictures like Tom Boone and you're doing your drawings and yeah, yeah. Lauren Chalabay so when at what age did you know cycling was like your I don't sport? think I ever realised that I was like really obsessed with it or had the love for it that much uh, I you know I never when someone asked me at school you know what do you want to be when you older it was never there's the thought of being a so when you see those pictures of Boone and whoever else in the, in the scrapbook it was like it was such a they were so up here like idols you know 
the thought of ever being a professional was like it was just a dream. But I don't know if that's where the, the drive and the desire came from because I thought it was so unachievable that I was just we well, call it in the video you say it was a dream, not you say not a, a goal. Yeah, a yeah, 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 yeah. Because I just looked up to them so much that I just couldn't believe that I would ever be like like they were. Yeah. Um and then maybe thinking back that was like half the problem so once like I said Archie did mention it in the guys. Once you then achieve your dream, which most people don't yeah. achieve because it's a dream, not a goal. Even looking back when my friends were going out and drinking in the park or whatever when they're fifteen, I just couldn't wait to go and club on the side and win. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But and that's what's great about it because I never felt like I didn't have a childhood because I was doing exactly what I wanted to do. Right. So what what age do you think that, that what age did that kick in for you? What age were you like I'm dedicating like my weekends are about riding, getting on the club run. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's just it. It never felt like that. It was, it wasn't like oh, I'm going to dedicate my life to cycling. Yeah. I just really, really enjoyed doing it. Yeah, yeah. So it was, it was just natural. It was just I was doing it because I loved it. Yeah. Um, and then maybe that's the difference between now and then. It's, it's a once the passion and maybe the love subsides a bit, and you, you don't really understand why. Um, it's trying to cope with that and get the mental energy. And then when, when do you start realising that actually, you know what, I'm fairly good here and I could do this more than just a, I don't, more than just enjoying my, riding my bike, I can actually win races, I can go racing the track like you were when you were sort of 16, 17. Yeah, 18. when, when I was young, I wasn't, I was always like, really, I was small now, but <laughs> I was like really small, you know, I was number 10, number 12, so I, I used to get a bit of a beating up. Um, Adam Blard and Luke Rowe and Mark McNally <laughs> growing up uh, but I was always there or thereabouts but never you know winning races and it was probably under under 16 maybe yeah went to the youth Olympics with, with Adam Blard and it's quite it's funny when you look back now so many guys who are racing in the youth Olympics like Alan Viviani won the road racer right. so many of the same guys they're just pros now yeah. they just followed the same trajectory um, so probably under 16s but then it's it was always a bit of a battle you know you, you big fish in a small pond you know you're winning like Peter Buckley uh, Peter Buckley's a junior so winning on the 16s races and then you t- turn junior and then you're winning Peter Buckley which is a national series now yeah. and then you go to do a stage race in Italy or Belgium you just get absolutely you know yeah, it's a diff- it's a big step up. It's, it? Yeah, yeah. There's, there's like a peloton that you've never rode in before. Yeah, and oh, it's just I was like, the first race I did. I think it was the Giro d'Italia Scala. Was under no, that's a junior. Sorry, I was just blown away. I was like, how am I ever going to be able to do this? Because it was just like another level. Yeah, and it was the same when we went to um, when we turned on twenty three and went to live in Italy as well. Just another. It took about seven seven months probably to learn how to just ride a bike even if you're physically good enough you know yeah yeah um, and the track side of it it was well we obviously don't have a track on the Alamar and I used to hate, I used to hate riding the track it, what was it the talent team right. uh, what for the, the it, it was for the team pursuit and the the, the talent team was set up by Brit- British Cycling back in early 2000s yeah so like, I think like Lizzie Dagen was discovered on it so he used to go around schools and like test people and just it was a three minute test basically and if you did certain powers then you'd you know go on this talent but the idea was to find like talent um, in England who, yes. who weren't already cyclists yeah yeah and um, so I did that and got onto that and um, that was the first time I started riding the track we'd have these camps in Manchester 
and I used to be petrified. We riding around this track on this bike with like I don't know maybe these old tires, just thinking I was going to slip down the bank in every corner. Yeah, and I was like, I honestly didn't didn't enjoy going on it one bit, but I just did it before. You know, I'm on the talent team, probably the right thing to do. And you were clearly good though, but you were clearly talented. I mean, at it. yeah, not that good on the track though. And then it was only until I really became friends with Luke Bro. And we used to basically share summers. So in the summer holidays, he'd come stay on the Alman for three weeks, and I'd go and stay in Cardiff for three weeks. Yeah. And Cordy Rose's dad was the manager of uh, Newport Belgium at the time. Yeah. So we'd just be on it loads. Yeah. And then after that, then I'd become more comfortable with the track. And, and then the Olympic Development Program for juniors was what I got on next. Mm. And that was really track oriented. Yeah. So, and then that's when that kind of progressed in that way. More books by. I mean, this is fast forwarded, but by obviously by 2012, you're mm-hmm. good enough to be in the yeah. TP, the team pursuit team at the London Olympics. Mm-hmm. So you clearly had the talent there. But before that, I remember, and I was doing a bit of reading actually before about when you were sort of 18, 19, 20, how like, you were quite hotly tipped. Like if you look back at old cycling weeklies and stuff, mm-hmm. it was, you know, you were in a, a school of really talented riders, as we sort of spoke about with Adam Blythe, Blue Grove, but. It was often like Pete Kennett was the one who was like earmarked or the one yeah. like, watch think, out for him. I think it was the, yeah, I don't know. I, my results, I did have quite a few results as a junior. And so I think it was like the national championships and stuff. Yeah. Um, but there was the time you came second as a junior, is that right? Uh, you behind Rob Howard? No, that first year under 23. First year under 23. So I think that's what started it, because obviously he's race against. And then the year after was... I think I was on the podium again. Yeah. Went through me and Brad and Cab and all those guys were in the race. Yeah. Um, so I think like, yeah, the British Cycling Press kind of got hold of that and obviously didn't, my road career probably, oh well, it wasn't as successful as like Garrett Thomas, but we're just uh, different characters, different people as well. So were you, so were you 21 when you signed for Sky? So yeah. What, do you remember getting the call? Do you remember, uh, being asked about joining the team because you joined on on inception didn't you yeah I remember so Rod Allenworth ran the academy in 2000 yeah 2008 when I was first on it yeah yeah and I shared with Ben Swift there uh, with Max Chandry following you yeah and I, I won quite a big race or two big races in Italy the first year um, amateur but then, and then Rod sent me Swifties um, list of results from the previous year for me to have for the following year and it was just like you know 30 top 10s and 20 top 3s and 5 wins and it was like oh, if you want to turn pro this is what your results need to look like next year not just 2 wins and then nothing else <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was like Jesus Christ I want to do this <laughs> <laughs> so um, but I was still riding the track at that point as well uh, did the Madison World with Cav yeah in 2009 he finished San Remo one San Remo didn't finish it and then flew to Poland to the Madison World and was like three days later. Yeah. So then, and then went back to Italy to try and turn pro effectively. And it was all right. It was a pretty average season up until the big Giro where I won the stage and got a top three. And then I think after that, that's when it was okay. Um, Sky will sign. So it was good. I think Max actually talked to Railsford or Shane Sutton on the phone after I won the stage straight away. Yeah, I and mean, that, that was it. The rest was sort of his. And then Fran Miller gave him a contract at one of the revolutions. Yeah, the old revolution. Yeah, yeah, the revolution series, yeah. yeah. I, I actually spoke to Ned Bolton the other day, and he said that he wanted to pitch for them to do at the revolution series when it was kind of like on his way out. Oh, yeah. Get 
uh, like do a triathlon or a duathlon with darts players and cyclists. What is our session with darts? <laughs> we, we, I, he was on the pod last time, and uh, I'd say like forty five percent of the episodes about darts. Oh yeah, not about cycling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, which was good. But um, anyway, see, but the so I imagine the first four years of Team Sky before you start getting that, it must have been great. Right. And well, it was just a massive learning curve, really. Especially, I mean, I was still doing the track as well, so it wasn't like you know full gas into the road. I was still training on the track throughout the winter, and that would take me through to about April, yeah, in the road season. But I remember being on the first training camp with Sky in Valencia in December two thousand and nine, or maybe January two thousand and ten. I remember calling someone at home and just being like. What is this about? I've gone from living in Italy with like 10 good mates and yeah. who all speak the same language and all have a lot in common. Just, it was just a complete lack, you know, like yeah. we obviously trained hard, but off the bike it was really fun. Like a boy's holiday. Yeah, to sat yeah. around the dinner table with a bunch of 30-year-olds talking about mortgages and babies <laughs> and I was 21. Like, there's a lot of the younger lads who were on Skyrim in Australia, you see. Right. So I was just like, Jesus Christ, this is boring. <laughs> and I was sharing a room with uh, Morris Bersoni, who spoke no English as well. So right. I was just like, it was in at the deep end. Um, so it's just, that first year was just, and then also stuff like, you know, you fly to every race. Yeah. Where we used to just jump in the minibus and drive an hour and a half to Rimini, you know, do a race and then drive back, stop it, and all the grill, get an ice cream and a kid, you know, and you'd be home, you know. <laughs> so there's a lot of, you know, adjusting and getting used to it. Uh, and just becoming an adult, I guess, as well. Yeah. Because it's, it, academy is probably like university, really serious, but not that, that serious in comparison to the real world. Um, and it was just about learning the trade and trying to get better, really. Yeah. And At one point, I thought I'd never win a pro race in my whole career. That's really? How, that's how hard it was, yeah. Wow. Yeah, so the first two years, especially. I was like, there's no, no way. Like, I couldn't even move up in the hell. Did you have a race? Was there one race in particular that you remember that you were like, this is uh, thick and brave well, I, I broke my collarbone in the Estrada Bianca, which was early in the first year of my career, and then came back to Romandy. And I was just like, oh, actually, yeah, I was just a passenger. Because at one stage it was like pouring down rain, it was all my gut. And I was just like, I was like, is this even cycling? Like, right, it just felt mental, you know? Yeah, yeah. And then, yeah, the welter that year as well, it was just crazy. I mean, even just to get into the just being in a decent position was hard, never mind, you know, be there to attack on a climb or <laughs> being involved in the race. But it was just part of, part of the process of, yeah, of learning, really. And then obviously you, you start, you know, with each season that goes by, you're, you're getting stronger, you become more of an established pro. And then it's 2013, isn't it, when you went your tour debut? Yeah. So, and you that's a tour that you, you finish, mm. you win, and also you win with mm. Chris Froome. So was that like a bit of a high? Was that... Sort of getting to the Champs Elysees in Paris, were you like, oh, actually, this is where it's starting to be like, yeah, what I've worked towards. That was quite a magic. It was the year after the Olympics, obviously. Yeah. So I think the year of the Olympics, I did, I think I did like 15 race days. Yeah. Which is, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. nothing. Yeah. Um, and then also the off season, barely rode a bike because I uh, just like quite young, got high, win the Olympics, gold medalist, etc., etc. And then, honestly, the only race I finished before the tour was the Dauphiné. Yeah. All year. Because <laughs> I, 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 I mean, I could name a few now, but I think Romandy didn't finish, Trentino didn't finish, uh, Catalonia didn't finish, and there was loads before that that I didn't finish. 
Yeah. And the idea was to go to the Giro that year. Right. Um, and yeah, obviously didn't finish the race, so I didn't go to the Giro, but they still sent me to the Tenerife camp. Yeah. Uh, which was preparing for the Giro. Right. So I went there, came down, everyone went to the Giro. And I think honestly, with doing all those races, even though I didn't finish them, and it just helped build that consistency in my life. And then with the Tenerife camp, where it was just two weeks of someone watching over me and making sure I train every day, yeah. and doing actual proper efforts and everything around the bike being being very serious. And then going back down, and then I just turned up at the Dauphiné and I was flying and yeah. got hit for the top. Yeah, so I remember saying in Tenerife, I said, I'd be mad if, you know, because I didn't go to the Giro, I was riding next to Freemi. I said, I'd be mad if um, after not getting picked for the Giro, I was flying in the Dauphiné and went to the top. He kind of just laughed at me. So it was never a plan? No, it was just no, like, no. Because no. you're informed. Yeah, he's, he's yeah. in the team. Yeah, basically. Yeah. And then you get that high, and so that must have been a big moment in your life, completing a tour. Because in the video, in the film, sorry, you talk about you had that little list of races that you wanted to do. Oh, yeah, and one of them was yeah. the tour. Yeah. I just remember, I was just all in. I just, it was so rocky the first half of the year, and I was just getting sick of just, like, not finishing races. Yeah. Um, and I just, yeah, I was just so, so committed. Like, everything was just about, about the bike, basically. Like comedy time until up until the tour, and it just yeah, it just worked. Yeah, but I don't know if that's how maybe most pros live all the time. That's not quite good all the time. But uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, the Chantelise that was definitely a kind of pitch yourself moment just because, like I said earlier, the being a professional was and the Chantelise was a dream. Yeah. Something that you watched on TV when you came home. Yeah, yeah. After school with your parents on Channel Four, I think it was at the time. Yeah, it was like. Yeah, not a chance, and then that happened, and that was incredible. Yeah. Do you reckon then, like, it's a bit of a coincidence that it's in 2014, so the year after where you start feeling that bit? Do you reckon there's any sort of link to the fact that you've done that that yeah. thing that you were talking about, you've written down in your notepad when you were yeah. a kid? Yeah, I don't know, maybe. Yeah, possibly. You're a psychologist. I'd be getting a lot more money if I wanted, I'll tell you that. Um, yeah, I, you just don't know, do you? I mean, obviously, yeah. there's certain external factors that there might be a couple a few of them that might have led to that sort of thought process starting to happen uh, I also think like complacency as well right um, when I look back because I've obviously thought about it more than anyone you know trying to work out I think having the three years um, to really just I mean I've commentated on the Tour de France yeah, prior yeah. to me but apart from that I've not really been massively involved in cycle right. so it's gave me like quite a lot of downtime I guess to, to think about it I ride my bike if I want to or when I feel like it and I think yeah I think passion is definitely one of the reasons motivation and yeah complacency I think the drive I had because I never quite believed that I was going to be a professional that drive to try and succeed and prove to myself or just just to do everything I could to make it happen mm. was a massive factor in me being successful and getting results. I think once you become complacent, it's so dangerous not to yeah. cycle for it in any walk of life. Did you talk to any of your teammates about it ever? Not really, no. Um, I talked to Mark Cavendish and Lee Bro when I was discussing about retiring for like that was the second to last time I retired. So, when, my first year on Bora, I was went in, in the April. Um, yeah. Because you had a free month, was that when you had the yeah, free month yeah. by April? I was, period. Yeah, I was exactly the same. I was like, oh, what do they do? Do you know what I mean? But I mean, the friends just try and offer 
support, don't we? You know, so I mean, there's not much you can really take from those conversations. You know, just yeah. do what's right for you, or um, how does like just try and get through it. But you know, at the end of the day, it's it's down to you, isn't it? I mean, you can try and take advice, but going through those periods, it's quite hard to really not the frame of mind to really take much in on or take much in anyway. So, because so, you talk in the in the again in the film about never having that closure. Mm. So was it just literally like uh, one morning you woke up and went, I'm not going to go back to the ra- race? No, the no, day, it was or? like, a, I didn't feel like I was, yeah, the closure was more not like that because even for the last two and a half years I still haven't had closure because I've always felt like I could go back if the circumstances were right or if I felt like I'd got into a place again where I really wanted to train and yeah. work towards being a professional again because, you know, obviously like I said, I was... I retired young because mm. um, I was going through different stuff. Um, and I felt like if I could get back to a place where I could trust myself and my feelings and be in control of my emotions and what I want out of cycling again, mm. then I'd really, you know, maybe look at the chance at, at, at going back. But for two years, that, that wasn't there at all because I was just constantly trying to figure that out and figure out the last four years of my career and why I'm, you know, why where I am now. Is yeah, it so it's quite important really the last the last three years to be honest. Are you open because now you're starting to dip your toe back into cycling now. Are you are you open to the fact of like maybe coming back or are you or is it something that you're sort of drawn a line under and you're sort of looking to do new stuff? Uh, a bit of both to be honest. I mean there's definitely there comes a time when the door does close. Yeah. Uh, but for me I think it's it was just the last three years has been about understanding my relationship with the bike, why it was the way it was, and why it reached that point. Yeah. Um, and I feel like I've got to that point now where I do understand it. It's been, it's been a hell of a journey the last three years, but it's been it's been good. It's yeah. what it's, the, the time away from the sport is, is what I've needed to appreciate it again, basically. Because I couldn't, I wasn't, I mean, it's only been this year that I've really been interested and excited about bike racing again to be honest right. watching it on TV for example and stuff like that so were you, did you go sort of cold turkey when you when you put down the bike in 2019 uh, did you kind of like really switch out and plug out it was really hard to watch yeah just because especially in races where you'd done well in, yeah. or you'd, you'd had you know good feelings and good experiences to watch that on TV and you know you're seeing all the athletes in the welter in like prime condition racer and you're just sat at home you know yeah yeah thinking about maybe should I go for a run or something. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm it, I'm happy where I am now. Um, when did you, in these last three years, when was there a point where you were like, actually I might, like when you looked back at the bike, you got it out of the garage or you sort of had felt that you were, you were happier or past that point? Yeah, I couldn't pinpoint it, but it, it, it definitely, for the first time this year, yeah. probably, Honestly, couldn't pinpoint it. Right. Um, now I've got well, four kids, so I mean, it's hard to pull up again. Every day just rolls into one. But yeah, definitely get that feeling that when you ride again, that it's enjoyable. Yeah. As um, has definitely came back. Yeah. And just just to appreciate the sport, and appreciate what you're good at as well. And yeah. I sort of hated so much that I just couldn't see clearly, you know. Mm. Um, and over time, once you process all your emotions that you went through, you realise as well what you're good at in life and what maybe you were gifted for. 
today. And yeah, now like I don't know if it's still being a couple years older or whatever, but you just you start to realise like what you took for granted and that side of things as well. Because you were a, a world class cyclist, because only so many people ride the Tour de France. Yeah. So and you you're among a very small percentile of people in the entire world. Yeah, and I think thing. I think as well, like now the kids have grown up a bit as well. You feel you see honestly not yourself and them, but you you can what you'd say to them if if you know if you were if yeah. that if they were me and I was their dad. And yeah. You don't want to see them take you know stuff for granted or yeah. throw you know good opportunities away. Mm-hmm. But I mean. No one ever listens to their dad, do you? So. <laughs> yeah, good point. Good point. But, that, you know, in going back to just the kids growing up and stuff, I think that just, those kind of situations helped me understand about, I don't know, just work out in my head that, yeah, just basically took, took a lot of grammars. Are you, do you look back with pride at your career now? Now you've had more time to reflect? I don't know. It feels like, like the, it's it just feels like it's really hard to explain because it feels there's so many different parts to it that it's yeah. not just one career. So when I watch videos, the road stuff really feels like, especially the last couple of years, really feels like me. But when I look back at the team suit in the Olympics, I don't know if it's because I'm so much younger, but it honestly just looks like a different person. It feels right. like I'm watching someone yeah, else yeah, do yeah. that race because if someone told me to get up on the start line for the games in London, and hear that countdown five, four, three, two, one. I'd honestly shit myself in front of my head. Um, so it's really bizarre watching the Olympics because I'm like, how the heck did I ever do that? You know, but I used, I just used to thrive off the excitement. Like you couldn't. Repeat. And you're also incredibly young. Yeah. So you don't. You're too young. When you're young, you don't have the. You're not old enough and long enough in the tooth to know you should be scared. Yeah, yeah. You're just, you're yeah. just living in the moment, aren't yeah. you? Um, but uh, yeah, the road career is. Yeah, I'm proud of certain results and stuff. And I thought, because I've obviously thought about like regret, regretting, regret, regret and resentment mm. and all that kind of stuff. I don't feel like I hold much resentment to the sport. So I feel like I can, I've, I've met people who have resentment and I'm definitely not one of them. I still like to conversate with people in the sport. I still like to watch it now. It's, yeah. You know, I work, I work in it um, and I appreciate it for what it is as well. Mm. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if I feel proud. I don't know what the word is. Really. I feel like it's just part of my life that that I did, and and that, that that's it. Like you said, when you're talking to your kids, you're going to be encouraging them not to, like you say, give up on something that they're good at and stuff. And I was just wondering whether, when your kids are older, you'll be able to sort of turn to them and be like, you know, I was a like, British national champion. Like this is my jersey from that day. Or like, yeah, yeah, that's what I mean in terms of mentally how your brain switches from, um, like say if you're work in an office and you've got a computer mm. in front of you. That's what like the national championship helped me felt like at certain points throughout the year, do you know what I mean? It's just a tool for the trade. Yeah. Where now sometimes in my office at home I look at it and think, bloody hell, as if that was ever marked. Like yeah. do you know what I mean? It's kinda like how how do, how did I do that? Because mm. it's so that, I think that's what I'm getting at when I talk about taking taking it for granted at yeah. the time. But it's quite tough and I think a lot of probably retired cyclists might agree with me that Maybe because it's such a gradual trajectory to, to where you get to, all just feels really, really normal when yeah. you're in it. Um, but yeah, looking when I get a chance to look back now, 
I guess I do feel proud for certain parts of the career. Um, so, I, I guess what's the what are you doing now? What's the, what's your what's your plan now? Because obviously, I, I had a really interesting conversation with a, a he's a business management lecturer, but he's doing a lot of work. He's Australian. He's doing a lot of work with Australian cyclists. About he says you're not retired. You've closed the chapter on your life because. Yeah. Pro cyclists retire at thirty-five, but you're not even halfway through your life. So, what's like? Have you started to think about what the future is for you and what where you'd like to, what you'd like to do? Yeah, especially in the last year. I mean, obviously, I stopped two thousand nineteen So, I mean, like so many people just obviously the company I've just set up surpassed. Yeah, which is coaching essentially. Um, but we want to really push grassroots cycling on the Ironman as well. Yeah, and great events for kids. Similar to what sports do in half terms, whether it's football camps or whatever, yeah, yeah, yeah. put on cycling camps. I really pushed that side of it on the Alamo. Uh, but I didn't want to just stop my career and just become a coach. And, you know, like, it's just too easy. And I wasn't in the right headspace to do it anyway. Yeah. So the last year I took on a few juniors, number 23. And I really enjoyed doing that because I, I don't know, maybe it's because it's probably my favourite time of my career. Yeah. You know, you're still young, but you're kind of getting into these competitive races which is starting to carry a bit of weight you know like for example Luke Bamford he arrives for Trinity and coach him right so that's really exciting at the moment because like he was we actually got disqualified in the world before I think finished mm-hmm. uh, no it was 10th and I got disqualified right. which he shouldn't have been disqualified it was it was a crash with another Belgian rider where they okay. basically rode into each other yeah the standard on the 23 <laughs> world's crash um, but just you know it's just given me so much back because you just see the passion that they have, that you have. Are you seeing yourself in them? Yeah, a little bit, yeah. yeah. And, it's, and I guess that's why you're like, I can impart my yeah, knowledge yeah. and what I've learned. And half of it's just holding them back. Really? Especially this day and age when they all have access to Instagram, Twitter, Strava, and they can just see what you know all the pros are doing, what all training anyone's doing. You yeah. know, when we, when we were juniors it's like cycling weekly wasn't it once a week and you know you barely really understand about training it was I mean now you can be 14 and have a power meter, power meter and you can literally see what Chris Froome or Garrett Thomas did yesterday yeah. and go and try and replicate it and when and you when you were becoming a pro you were looking at like Cadell Evans whereas now they're looking at a 22 year old well, I look at Evnipol and they think yeah. oh that could be me in two years yeah. but it can be quite I mean and you've got to realise that everyone's not and everyone follows um, so half of it's trying to hold them back right because let's say that age they just, they just love it so much that you can do, it's so easy to train so when you're not developed do you reckon you'll take that role of like being a coach further at all I think so yeah, yeah. I really enjoy doing it so, yeah. especially with the with the other 23s yeah. um, spoke to Andrew McQuaid quite a bit as well about possibly working for his team yeah, yeah. next year as a DS so the but Trinity. Yeah, and that's yeah. where uh, Ian Stannard is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But it's uh, one of the biggest things actually is getting experience. Yeah. Because like, okay, you stop um you stop cycling, you've got all this experience being a cyclist, you've got you've got no experience doing anything else. Even if someone said to me tomorrow, jump in the car of Astana and be a DS, I'd be like, How the heck do you do that? Do you know what I mean? Well funny you say that your one of your old teammates, Matt Heyman, I remember chatting to him about so he retired and like literally the next day he became a DS. Mm. And he turned up at, uh, I think it's like World Tour Mercia. He overtook me on the descent in the car. It, it, so he said he just literally got chucked the keys. Yeah. Matt White was like, 
He's like, I've never done this before. Yeah. And he's like, well, you're going to learn somewhere. Yeah. It's yeah. here at Messier. Yeah. It's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. And he said, yeah. then he's like, booking hotels for like 25 people, having previously, all he had to focus about was. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a different ballgame. Yeah. Even, and you just see the world differently. Yeah. Like, you know, when you're a cyclist and you see a journalist, you go, oh my God, you know, who wants to live with me again? And what's going to happen? And now it's like, well, all these guys are actually like doing a job, do you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. And they've, you know, spent years of their life studying to get to this point where they're good at a job. Yeah. And it's like that in every aspect of life. Mm. Um, and you stop cycling, literally all you can do is ride a bike. Yeah. Um, so it's quite, it's eye-opening, actually. So yeah, that's where I'm at at the minute, really. Trying to sort of evolve our project, push the path. I've got a couple of quick-fire questions before oh, yeah. we finish, because they're always nice to, nice to finish on. So I'm going to start off with, I think I know the answer to this one. So Island Man or Italy? Ooh, I gotta say Island Man. Not, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a tough one. Man. I'll say Island Man. Who was, uh, who's your best teammate? Ooh. Oh, I've, I've got two men. Uh, can I say three? Yeah, Luke Rowe, Jamie Parkey, Adam Barr. He was right. never a teammate for me. Okay. Oh, okay. Foam and hat. Yeah, yeah. And I've, I've been with Adam Barr, I can imagine. It's yeah, quite yeah. Fun. Um, who did you race against or ride with that you were most impressed by? Chris Froome back in the in his glory days, the way he used to climb and the speed he used to look for. Yeah. But then Garrett Thomas was probably just impressive. Yeah. Because you know, he wasn't as natural as a climber, but the hard work he put in was just like really unbelievable. And he gets that level. Yeah. Tied to that too. And was, yeah. was there a time you ever felt starstruck by a rider? I always feel starstruck. I feel starstruck tonight. Really? Yeah, I get really nervous around like people. Yeah. yeah. Is, is there anyone tonight that you're a bit? Well, no. even just people I don't even know that well, like Cancellara. Do you know what I mean? What yeah. do you want to say to him? Because I always get. I remember when I met Fausto Coffee. Right. But not Fausto Coffee. Fausto Pinarello. Yeah. Fausto Pinarello. On the first, on the 2010, um, first panel. Yeah. And I, because I get really like conscious of. Like, do they know who I am? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I said, Oh, hi, five, so nice to meet you. Um, and Pete, and he was like, Oh, yeah, I know who you are. We gave you a bike last year. And I was like, Oh my god, so embarrassing. Um, like, even like Tom Boone, like, was he was in a scrapbook. Yeah, I remember he was like, We're doing that stupid thing where you ride behind the team's riding and no one wants to let you. So you got like the GC team on the front. Sure. Then there was like me with Froome and Sky. Then there was like him with his quick set team. And I was like, we kind of should be, should be riding me up, got through, and we kind of tried to like to push me off and get his team on. And I just held the ground. <laughs> and in the head, I was like, I can't do this, I can't do this. And I was like, I'm doing it because I'm just trying to just sit right here through me behind me. Yeah. He's like got a good chance of winning the ground. So in the head, I had all the right reasons for not letting him do the hand up here. Even though like, I, I knew I didn't want to get into a fight with Tom. <laughs> and it, he was just, he was so annoyed at me. He was like, oh, are you crazy? <laughs> So yeah, but I mean, especially when you first in pro, because there's that age gap. Where is the best place cycling took you? Like the best place you got to visit, not just for bike racing, but was there somewhere you went and you were like, wow, actually? Should be, but the problem with cycling is, and how serious it's got, Laura Winters actually saying the the F1 as well. Kind of just like go to all the different places, but they're all the same because you're just in the hotel and you you, you do the what, wherever the race goes and then you're on the bus and you've got like the, the blinkers on and you're just focused um, but I've been to, but you know I haven't said that I have 
got to travel the world and meet some cool places. Went to Cali World Cup in Colombia. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But we didn't see much of Colombia, but it was just a pretty cool trip because it was quite old school in a way. So just me, Rob Hales, Rod Allenworth, and Luke Bevilde, Belgium Swan. So that was quite a fun trip. Yeah. I was only like 19, so that was cool. Because you get to, when you do Australia, you go for a, a bit before you get to acclimatise. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I was chatting to the other guys. Same so you get, you're there for like 10 days before. Stay on the beach and Bernal. That, that was nice. But I, I probably, if you had to say one place, it was just getting to know Parata and where we stayed down there in the academy in, in Tuscany. So that was, it's worst places in the world. Yeah, probably. yeah. So that was cool. Um, and my final one before we wrap up is what's one word you use to describe yourself? Rare. I like that. There we have it. Our lovely chat with Mr. Pete Kennett. Uh, thank you very much, Pete, for coming on, if you're listening to this. And thanks for being so honest and candid. I thought we really had a nice conversation about what is ultimately quite a sort of tough subject for him. And as I could, I think you could tell when we were talking. Um, so big props to him for being so honest. Uh, no James today, unfortunately, listeners, because he's down on his holiday in Cornwall, indulging in Cornish pasties and Cornish cider. And he's so stuffed to the brim that he couldn't find time to do this quick outro with us. But nonetheless, he'll be back in two weeks' time for our next episode so listen back then uh if you enjoyed this episode of course be sure to share it with your cycling friends give it a like on all of the relevant podcast apps and also to subscribe to us where you can and that's all from me for now enjoy your november evening afternoon morning whenever you're listening this to and we'll be back again soon This episode of the Cyclist Magazine podcast is brought to you by Sportful, home of the Fiandra Collection. That's right. The Fiandra is a no-nonsense range that was developed on the cobbled bergs of Flanders, where the variable weather can be as challenging as the road you're riding on. Using valuable input from Sportful's pro riders, the likes of Peter Sagan and Paolo Bettany included, the Fiandra Collection mixes weatherproof technology with a performance fit for tough clothing that you can actually race in. With everything from warmers to jackets, bib tights to gilets, the Fiandra range will have you covered from head to toe, leaving you with no excuse not to ride. Prices starting from £45, the Fiandra range is available at all Sportful stockists. For more information on the Sportful Fiandra range, click the link in the episode description below.